in today's show. We're talking draft prospects. We're going to be looking at Jet Howard. We're going to be looking at Nick Smith Jr. And we're going to be looking at the big fella, Victor Wemenyama. It's all coming up. Michael Bolton. Thanks, Josh. It's Michael Bolton here, and it's time for another episode of the Locked On Fantasy Basketball Podcast. Let's get to it. Let's get to it, indeed. You are Locked On Fantasy Basketball, your daily fantasy basketball podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to the Locked On Fantasy Basketball Podcast brought to you by Basketball Monster. My name is Josh Lloyd and I am the lead fantasy analyst at BasketballMonster.com. And you can find me on Twitter as always at RedRock underscore B-Ball, on TikTok at RedRock underscore B-Ball and on Instagram at Locked On Fantasy Basketball. Thank you for making Locked On Fantasy Basketball your first listen every day. We are free. We're available on all platforms. Yesterday, as soon as the lottery ended, I did my first mock draft, mock draft 1.0, which is the official beginning of my analysis of draft prospects. It isn't because I've been doing this stuff for weeks, months, but my first sort of public thing of how I view the prospects. Now, over the next five weeks or so, we're going to be going through bunches of them with a bunch of draft analysts. My opinions will change. I don't think I'll change their opinions, but you never know. And we'll chat about the strengths of and weaknesses of these guys. So we're going to do that today for the first time this season. All right. So to talk about this first batch of NBA prospects, I'm going to bring in from No Ceilings. You're going to hear that name a lot over the next few weeks. It is Nathan Grubel. Nathan, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for for having me on, Josh, as well as everyone else from the No Sons Collective. We appreciate the support. We're happy to talk NBA draft, whatever opportunity we have to do it. Yeah, it's uh, you guys do great work all year, and if people aren't listening to to No Ceilings, I highly suggest that they do because you, know, you guys put out so much content all through the season. But especially at, at this stage of the year, there's just so much going on, and uh, we really appreciate the insights that you guys bring uh, throughout this period. Um, I, I am going to start by talking to all of everyone who comes on as a draft analyst because we saw the NBA draft lottery yesterday. There wasn't a huge shakeup in it, but there is quite a bit of differing opinions in terms of the um, the the way the top five picks will shake out or who you think is, is going to go or who should go in those top five picks. So just quickly, the top five, we, we know the order at San Antonio. We've got Charlotte, Portland, Houston, Detroit. What do you think that top five looks like? So for me, if the order is as it stands, no trades, those five teams, obviously Victor Wembanyama is going number one off the board. I still believe Scoot Henderson needs to go second overall. I would have Brandon Miller third overall to Portland. And then at four, I would take a Men Thompson if I were the Houston Rockets. And then at five, one of my favorite fits in that top five, Cam Whitmore to the Detroit Pistons. That to me, hand and glove fit. Um, I agree with that, except I had Taylor Hendricks at five, but it would be between okay. between him and Whitmore at five. I see a lot of people putting Brandon Miller at two because of fit. I 100% disagree with that, and it seems that you're on board with me with me there with having Scoot at number two. And yeah, I think it's a fait accompli that Amen's going to go in the in the top four. And that top four, the only difference to me appears to be what happens between two and three, and then five mm-hmm. is a wild card between you know, four or five different players. I think could end up going there, but that. That's that part out of the way. So I asked everyone coming on to the show over the next couple of weeks, who is a player that they are higher on than the consensus? I also asked everyone a player that they are lower on than the consensus. So we're going to start doing that. And I've been, yeah, in my in my spare time here, I've been learning little tricks and tips on uh, 
on Premiere Pro. So I've got a little stinger for the don't sleep section. This is a player that you are higher on. Nathan, Jet Howard, a guy that admittedly, this is great to start things off because I'm not particularly high on Jet Howard. He's as I might as well just say this. Every player in this draft is basically 19. Every player in the first round is 19 years of age. He's a shooting guard out of Michigan. He's six foot eight. He's a shooter. Um, that, that's, that's, that's what he is. And my thing with him, I, I believe in him being a really strong shooter. I'm not sure what else, what else he does, what else he can bring. So why are you higher on Jet Howard? Cause he's got a pretty big range in terms of where people are, are mocking him and having him on these, uh, on their big boards. So for me with Jet Howard, it, it's funny how the first half of the year, he was someone who very quickly shot up boards and it was to the point where he was a pretty guaranteed lottery pick all the way up until about January. And then you saw his stock really fall off because his play fell off. His overall field goal percentage dropped. His three-point percentage dropped. He wasn't getting to the rim nearly as capably as he could in the first part of the year. Obviously, the at-rim attempts are a contested point for his entire body of work. But first half of the year, second half of the year, really big drop-off. He was hurt that second half of the year. He injured not one of his ankles both of his ankles so this man was not able to move nearly as well as he did in the first part of the year where you talked about him as a shooter the shooting is absolutely a main selling point but it's not just spot up shooting it's the versatility at which he's able to shoot the ball right catch and shoot running him off of all different kinds of actions movements floppies however he wanted he needed to be utilized at michigan they did everything in their power not only get him the ball to shoot but also put him in a position as a secondary creator to make decisions on the ball, you know, enable some of his passing ability, which he does have good vision at his size. So that's really another selling point to me is it's the combination of shooting at his size, but also secondary playmaking potential. I'm not going to ask you to, to rank these guys necessarily, but would you say that there's an argument that he is the best shooter in the class? He's certainly up there. He's certainly up there. I do think it's a battle between a number of guys. I think, for my money, I'd take Bryce Sensabaugh as the best shooter in this draft class, but he's up there with with a Grady Dick. There are a few other guys we can put up there. Jordan Hawkins is, is certainly in that conversation. Those are my top four in terms of pure shooters in the class. Yeah, because you're right. It's not just about, hey, can you hit catch and shoots? It's like, what, what can you do coming off screens? What can you do with movement? What can you do to make defenses panic whenever you're um, you know, pick and popping or whatever you're doing? Like, how can you create that chaos on the defensive end by able to do multiple mm -hmm. different things? And you're right. You can do that. And the injury thing is really interesting because, you know, we look at all he does and go, okay, well, what is there? Can you get to the rim? Can you put pressure on the defense that way? what do you do defensively like all that sort of stuff but let me ask you the other part of it like when he gets the ball in his hands does it have to be a shot can he run any pick and roll can he you know make yep. easy reads can he be a let's you know i'll talk about this a bit later in the show but could there be the way that sort of a kevin herder plays where he's not a point guard but if the ball is in his hands you feel all right about it and he's also an excellent shooter Absolutely. That's actually a great comparison by you, Josh, right? Somebody who at Maryland, it's funny how Kevin Herter popped to me when he was in college. I get that his major spike in, in the general eye was at the combine where he was able to really light it up from a shooting perspective, but I actually got to scout Kevin in person very early on during that season in Maryland. And the biggest thing that popped to me was, yeah, he's a six, seven, six, eight guard who he's shooting, but he's also handling the ball and making decisions, making plays for others out of pick and roll, making live dribble decisions, redirecting the ball where it needs to go. I think Jed Howard has that same level of ability. And that's, again, that's part of why I'm so high on him. I think you brought up a few of the negatives that can be had, right? 
is he able to get to the rim and put pressure on the rim as many times as he needs to in a game? I think that ability is there more so than people want to give it credit for, given what I saw in the first half of the year. But it is a minor concern. The rebounding, to me, is another concern, right? He wasn't a good rebounder for somebody his size. You'd expect that to be a strength. And then on the defensive end, I think he's perfectly fine on the ball. But off the ball, he had some awareness concerns. So that's also something that's going to need to get cleaned up when he goes to the next level. One thing that I was going to lead to later, but I'll ask now, in terms of player comparisons, that how you, as someone who's looking at the draft all year round and is you know, looking at this really, really in-depth compared to others, how do you try and avoid the easy comparisons? By easy comparisons, I mean like white shooter to white shooter, yeah, black athlete to black athlete, or even so I'm seeing now like people in Detroit go, man, we don't want to pick Jarris Walker because he's just Isaiah Stewart. And I go, bro, it's just because of their hair. The only reason you're saying that is because their hair is the same. Or I had someone tell me, man, I don't want Cam Whitmore. He's another Cam Reddish. Yeah, because of his first name. It's like these mm-hmm. things get inherently it's it's hard to beat that hard to beat that mental hang up of these comparisons or these the way we draw that skin color hair color hair type hairstyle size um, school they went to how do you try and break that out of your analysis? I, I leave it specifically to what I'm looking at on the tape, right? That that's how you need to do comparisons, shades of however you go about it. I do think comparisons are an important tool, right? If you're talking with somebody in the basketball or being another scout and executive, right? They're going to ask you for a comparison because if someone's never seen a player before, that's exactly how you can illustrate what that player's game is. And that's why it needs to tie to the game, right? And that's why comparisons do get a little tricky. I can be talked into a comparison, but I can also as quickly talk myself out of it because if, the, if there's something, if there's a physical trait, if there's a specific skill that, that doesn't mesh from one player to the next, then I don't want to use that comparison and just fall back on it. I want to find something that fits perfectly or as perfectly, I should say, as I can what I'm seeing on tape, not just some of the lazy tropes like you're talking about. We're going to get back and talk about some more prospects in a second, but today's episode is brought to you by eBay Motors. For a championship team, it's all about making sure every player is a perfect fit. It's the same when it comes to your vehicle. Every part needs to fit just right. So the next time you need parts and accessories, head to eBay Motors. With eBay Guaranteed Fit, you can be sure every part that you f- you need fits right the first time around. Just add your ride to my garage and look for the green check to know that your part will fit or your money back. Because just like in sports, confidence is the name of the game when you shop on eBay Motors. And with over 122 million parts to choose from, you'll be back in the game in no time. After all, it's easy to bring home a win when the right parts are guaranteed. Get the right parts, the right fit, and the right prices on ebaymotors.com let's ride ebay guaranteed fit only available to u.s customers eligible items only and exclusions apply all right that brings us to our reality check nathan nick smith jr and i'm going to be honest with you like this is a a guy that obviously came in to college with really high pedigree number one recruiting the class in some situations or from some services and has fallen way down. I'm seeing a lot of people tell me, "Mm, you know what, I'm a bit lower on Nick Smith than consensus. I'm not actually sure even where consensus sits on Nick Smith Jr. He's a combo guard from Arkansas. And again, I'm probably going to stop saying it. He's 19 years of age. He's a little bit younger than Jed. He's about six months younger. He's 6'5". You could see him going anywhere from the lottery to outside the top 20. Um, But when we're looking at these stats, you can see on the screen, like that's just horrific shooting numbers. So what happened? What happened from Nick Smith being a guy that, you know, for me, a casual observer of incoming high school classes, when I looked at this and went, yeah, oh, these guys coming in, man, we've got Scoot and Victor, obviously, there's the Thompsons, there's Nick Smith. Yeah, he was in that group. We're not talking about it. So what happened? What, what, what went wrong? 
So Nick Smith is another fascinating story in this draft class. And we just got done talking about Chet Howard, who suffered an injury that that certainly affected his play. And to an extent, that's also what happened with Nick Smith, right? So Nick Smith came into the year recovering from an injury, was able to play about five games, really three games at full strength in terms of the minutes he played. And then he re-aggravated an injury and then he was out again. And many thought, is this the end of what we're seeing from from Nick Smith in terms of this season? Are we going to have to go into the pre-draft process closer into May and June with only about five college games at our disposal to watch? And then we'd have to lean more on the high school tape. Now, to his credit, he came back. He played in February and March when a lot of people thought he would sit. I give him credit for that. That shows competitive character. That shows a willingness to want to do anything he can, regardless of how much he's in shape physically as put together to help his team win. I get all of that. The thing is, Josh, you mentioned the shooting splits. They were not nearly as good as we were expecting. To me, it's some of the other pieces to his game as well, that if you go back and watch the high school tape, he just hasn't been able to show a level of improvement from where he was at then to ultimately what he's going to be able to come in and do in the NBA level now, right? He's not a high-level playmaker out of pick-and-roll sets. He's not a high-level passer, in my opinion, to begin with. There are plenty of defensive concerns in terms of how he goes about finishing at the basket. It's not. It's more so the angles that he takes and the way he looks to finish at the basket. He doesn't hunt for contact. He doesn't want to go up into somebody and take that closer angle. He wants to take wide angles, and he wants to try and kiss it off the glass. And I get if you have touch, if you're, if you're a guard who has that type of touch and you look for those shots and you can make them, that's fantastic. But he also didn't make a lot of his runners, his floaters. So there's all these different aspects to his game that I'm looking at as a negative. And then if the shot really isn't there, if he's not as versatile of a shooter as we think he is, what are we pointing to as a positive with his game to where he's going to come in his rookie year and make an impact and earn minutes and really play a significant role for a team? Now, that's not that's not giving him, a, a, a for, for lack of a better term, a death sentence on his career or anything like that, right? But at the same time, why would I invest high draft capital like a lottery pick in someone who I'm not even confident when they're going to be able to come in and impact my team? And I think that's more so why he's fallen on a lot of big boards. Well, especially in a draft like this, where you know, in the terms of the, the top-end talent and the, the depth of the top-end talent, it seems significantly more, higher than what it is in previous years. So you could make an argument maybe in previous years that at pick nine or 10, it would make sense to try Nick Smith but mm-hmm. in this draft. Probably not. And you want to talk about you know, what does he do? Like if you go to Tankathon and click on a player's profile, they have this thing called stats, strengths, and weaknesses with green pluses and red minuses. And his page is just all minuses. The only positive is age and no turnovers. Everything else is just a negative, which is a horrible look. So is he a just a player like you talked about, you know, if the passing doesn't come and the shooting doesn't come, like without a position, like without a role, is he he's not good enough shooter as a shooting guard, he's not a good enough passer as a point guard. Is he just sort of sitting in between where there's just no real role at this point? He, he, he's not really locked into a position one way or the other. And in some cases, we could point to that to a player and say that's a strength if we can label them as a combo guard. But at the same time, there, if there's no real strengths one way or the other and your issue is you just don't have enough experience right now to come in and impact the NBA game at a high level and you need to get reps somewhere, that just comes back to, again, you know, how long is that going to take? You know, how, how long is it going to take for him to be – more comfortable playing at the speed at the NBA game when he struggled to keep up with the speed and and looked a little erratic and out of place at the college level, right? We're talking about making essentially two jumps up because he didn't really get a lot of playing time in college. So, I mean, you you know, you know, as well as I do, Josh, you watch a lot of NBA basketball because of what you do, the, the, the pace of the game, the speed of the game, the physicality, 
all those adjustments, if you can't make that jump in college, how long is it going to take you to make that jump in the NBA? That's a great transition to the next thing that I was going to ask because I talked about this on my mock draft yesterday and we can talk about him coming in as a number one recruit or however you want to view it depending on, on what service you're looking at. And people go, well, yeah, bank on that. And I said, well, when was the last time like a top five high school recruit that sucked in college? And the two that really come to mind to me are Cam Reddish and Nassir Little. They didn't suck, but they weren't particularly good. People go, oh yeah, we'll just see. Like they came in as this high high school recruit, but it, it didn't happen. Like what are they now? They're both fighting for reserve minutes on the same team in the NBA three years into their career. Like that high school pedigree. And the other name I brought up was Scal Libissier. Like cool, where's Eplo playing now? Like he's nowhere. So I can't think of an example, and you would probably know this more than me, of these guys are coming with high profile, top five high school recruit type players who struggle in college, but then turn into big time NBA players. I can't. I couldn't think of one, and I'm sure there is one, but I couldn't so, think of one. So not the college level, Josh, but I was literally thinking about this 20 minutes before we started recording a podcast, so much so to where I put out a tweet on, on Twitter, and I said, who would you rather have prospect-wise coming into their draft? Nick Smith Jr. or Jaden Hardy? Who, Jaden uh, Hardy yep, yep. also struggled in, in, now in a professional league, in the G League, right? Struggled shooting the basketball, and a lot of people knocked him for that. They wanted to look at his game and sort of pick it apart and say, well, if he didn't do this within this time frame, why am I investing a lottery pick in him when he had other strengths to his game to point to, right? He's built much better than Nick Smith is, right? I trust him finishing around the basket much more than I do Nick Smith. I trust him to put a body on someone and hang defensively more so right now than I do Nick Smith. So regardless if some of the high-level playmaking stuff doesn't come around for him, he did prove that he could knock down shots, especially in February and March last year in the G League. And now you look at him this year, his shot chart, no matter where he played, Josh, it was all red all the time. So Hardy's someone who I kept a lottery grade on on my personal big board, but the NBA clearly didn't feel that way. And he went in the second round. So what about Nick Smith game makes it jump out so that he should go ahead of someone like Hardy if that's where Hardy went? That's kind of where I'm at with how I feel about Nick Smith's stock. Yeah, that's an interesting one because the other thing I think with the G League Ignite is we've got, you know, years and years and years of like college production, but we don't really know the how to view the, the G League production, the mm -hmm. the extension to the full NBA line and how, and it's going to get even worse this season, we're trying to look at overtime elite. But like, we don't, we don't know. We don't have a huge, we've got six players mm -hmm. or something that have come from the G League into the NBA. We don't know how it all translates. We don't know what struggles are real or if that's a red flag or a green flag or whatever it is. But in college, we, we tend to, to know that. We've got years and years and decades of experience with seeing well, if you can't do this in college, then you're in real trouble. Like that's, we've got that experience. And that, that's a really interesting thing. So before we move on to the next play, which is of course the number one player in the draft, that's Victor Wembanyama. Before we move on to him, we talk about you being down on Nick Smith. So would you, first round, is he, is he not even that high for you? Is he like not a top 20 player? Where do you think he is? So he's still on the back end of the first round for me right now, but he's a player who I could, I could see myself dropping him into like that early second round range. It really is going to all depend on who's choosing at the back end of that first round, like that top, you know, 20 to 30 range, who is confident that they have the developmental resources in place to actually devote the amount of time that Nick Smith needs in the right setting to bring the best out of him and give him the reps that he clearly needs. But because of that uncertainty, because I feel that he needs a certain level of investment made into him and he's not just a plug and play, I know what I'm going to get from him. That's just even more so that, that even taking him at the back end of the first round there's still some level of associated risk when you have plenty of other intriguing options, older options that you can look at in that same range and go, I know what I'm going to get from that guy if I bring him into my organization and draft him. 
So let's do it. Let's talk Victor Wembanyama. And honestly, I, I don't really know what to say. Like, I, I don't know what what do we what do we pick on with him? What do we praise with him? We've heard it all before, and that's why like he's not really a, a huge priority to me in terms of analyzing this draft. There is zero chance that he doesn't go at pick number one. He is obviously insanely tall. He's got massive wingspan. He blocks shots. He can dribble. The shooting numbers weren't elite, elite, but there is obviously room there, and he's a good free throw shooter. Um, he was on a high high usage sort of situation in Metropolitans as well. Like a seven foot five guy with a thirty percent usage is just an astonishing thing to look at. Um, so I don't really know where to go here with Wembenyama. Um, I don't want to get into like oh, is he best best prospect since because I don't know what that really serves, but. Let's talk about like what do you think that if there was anything that was going to keep him from being a multi-time, I don't know, I won't even say All NBA All Star. Like, what would be the thing that keeps him from being that player? Well, so to be honest, I don't think there's going to be much of <laughs> anything in terms of another player situation that's going to keep him from that throughout his entire career, other than himself and just how he holds up physically. What I will say, though, Josh, it's interesting he's going to go to San Antonio projected, right? We don't technically have that answer yet, but we all think that's what's going to happen. But he's going to San Antonio in a situation where they don't really have a, a point guard that you can point to on the roster and say, you know what, this is a guy I trust to consistently get Victor the ball where he needs it in certain spots. So if there's anything that's good, that could hold him up offensively early on in his career where he is asked to do a little bit too much going from one level to the next, and maybe it just doesn't look as good as we want it to look within his first year, maybe his first year and a half, that to me could be something that I would point to. But overall, how he's projected to grow, he will become his own self-shot creator, right? He kind of already is that to an extent. He's 7'5". He can shoot over anybody he wants to, but it's a matter of he's still someone, in my opinion right now, who needs to get the ball in certain spots where he's most comfortable. And that, to me, if I was San Antonio and I'm looking to address the first need around Victor as we start to build out this roster around him, that point guard position, I would evaluate that very closely. Is the answer Trey Jones? Is the answer going somewhere else? Maybe it's bringing in a more experienced veteran. Like if Fred Van Vliet doesn't re-up with Toronto, maybe he's someone who they could sign because they're going to have some cap space. I don't know the perfect answer off the top of my head, but that would be the first thing I'd look to address around him to make sure he can succeed. Yeah, because the passing on that team is not great. Like Trey Jones is fine, but like Devin Vassell's probably below average as a passer. He's not bad, but he's probably below average as a passer for his position. Keldon Johnson's like an invisible negative infinity <laughs> level passer. Um, Jeremy Sohan, they ran him at point guard a little bit, but I don't think he can handle that role full time. Malachi Branham's not too, a too early passer. for him. Yeah. It's like yep. the passing is, is not great on that team. Um, yeah. Devontae Graham's there, but like, okay, you're not going to rely upon him to be running things with that squad. So I, I, I understand that, but I, I also agree with you that it's not going to be very long before Victor's just creating everything for himself. And yep. honestly, I, we, we, people can be hyperbolic about Wembenyama, but, it wouldn't surprise me if he is the second best passer on this team really, really quickly. Like he can do, he's got dribble moves. He can, he can see what's happening obviously all across the floor. And it's not a high bar to pass on that team in terms of passing ability. Um, do you have any concerns that the shot never comes around? No, I, I, I have zero concern about the top. The fact that he can create the types of shots that he can at that size with his massive hands and his, and his massive like that, that it's, it's utterly ridiculous what he can do from a shot making perspective and the percentage no the percentage doesn't worry me one but especially you know key stats you have up on the screen right there 83 percent 
currently from the line. I get he's had some some cold streaks, some hot streaks from the line that have made that percentage go a little wonky throughout the season. But where he's ultimately going to settle in at, if he's 75 plus from the line at the NBA level, I fully expect that three point shot to come around, especially since he I think he's going to get good looks or, or better looks in time as that roster develops around him and they bring in better players to complement him. The all of the attention won't be on him at some point. He'll be able to get some cleaner looks versus being one of the only guys for Met 92 who's, you know, tasked with generating shots on a regular basis every trip up and down the floor. He he averaged almost six free throw attempts per game in 32 minutes. So like it's it's a decent volume as well uh, across those yeah. 30 games that he played. Like to hit him at 83 percent, like that's 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 good enough. Like that's a really good indicator. And we look at your know, projected three point percentage. You know, that's he's probably going to be a, a mid 30s guy pretty quickly. I would think, and probably never going to be a 40 percent shooter. But who is like? There's not that many of those guys who do that. Especially those guys at seven four five who are yeah are blocking four shots a game, which is legitimately a possibility for women Yama. So I don't think we need to go on about him too much. And that takes us from a guy with a million different skill sets and positives and shooting touch and creation upside to a bloke who I'm not sure has ever hit a shot in his life. And that is uh, Dylan Mitchell. The they, they list him as a small forward. He's not like I. I, I I think generously lose him as a powerful. He's like a six seven center. Like he's eleven percent usage. That's exactly how they used him at Texas a lot. Six seven. Like he's again, he's nineteen, as everyone is. There's a chance he's to me a definite second round guy, not a first round guy. He might not get drafted as well. But you know, sixty four percent field goal is great, but it's eleven usage. He doesn't take any threes. He had forty percent from the line. He's a six seven center, and we've seen some small centers, PJ Tucker, have value in that role certain times. But Mitchell's just inability to really do anything that would be usual for his frame is a real detriment, I think. Dylan Mitchell's very fascinating, right? So it's this combine week has actually been very interesting because we've been able to see Dylan Mitchell participate in shooting drills. He's actually shown some improved mechanics within those drills. He's been knocking down shots in the drills, but Josh, we know... There's a big difference between knocking them down in drills and actually having the confidence and the willingness to take them in a basketball game. And your point, going back to high school, even he really hasn't taken a lot of jump shots. I, I don't think it's a touch, ish, touch issue, especially now with some of the mechanical adjustments he's made. I think he can do it. It's just a matter of will he do it to the level that he needs to and then are all of the other parts to his game going to come around to where he's more than just a lob threat or, or a dump off pass threat or like an offensive rebounder. Like there, there needs to, at the same time, given the position he's likely going to play, there needs to be a level of offensive skill that complements his game. Someone who, in my opinion, was a much better prospect than Dylan Mitchell, but we've seen him struggle in the NBA without more refined offensive skill. Jonathan Kaminga, Jonathan Kaminga has been a headache for the Warriors at times offensively. And yet I would have considered him because of his build, because of his frame, because of his power, his speed combination, I'd consider him a better prospect. And yet if he's even struggling at certain moments, and I think he would, depending on the situation he was at, not just because he's in golden state in a more complex offensive system. What are we to expect from Dylan Mitchell offensively, regardless of some of the results we can get on the defensive side of the ball? I think you just, you need to be able to put the ball in the basket in more ways than one to play significant minutes in the NBA 
that's not the type of guy he is right now. It's not only that you have to be able to put the ball in the basket, you have to make the opponent think that you're going to put the ball in the basket. Like that's that's part of it as well. Like you can do it, but if yep. the opponent just is like, when you get it, they're just going to be like, what are you talking about? Like, and they don't care, then it that screws thing everything up as well. Even if they do occasionally go in now. In thinking about the sort of player he's interestingly, he was ranked fourth in ESPN's top 100 entering this class as well. So another one of those high guys who, who did really struggle. But talk about six, seven small forwards who basically are centers. There are two names that come to mind in the current NBA who technically are small forwards, but realistically have a game that's similar to a center. Now, one of them, maybe it's a little bit unfair, but the one that immediately came comes to my mind is Hamadou Diallo uh, in Detroit, who just never takes a three and basically is just dunks, just finishing at the rim, yeah. um, explosiveness and high field goal percentage, but defends on the perimeter, but is an offensive center. And the other one, to a lesser degree, because he has improved his three-point shooting, is KJ Martin in Houston, who really struggled at times with some of his outside shooting, plays obviously above the rim, gets in and and drives and, and attacks and defends that way, has improved his three-point shooting. Obviously, he's way better than where Dylan Mitchell is. But they're two guys who sort of play an, a center role on offense despite being in a small forward's body. The athleticism of those guys, Diallo and Martin, though, is off the charts. Like, it's insane athleticism for both those guys. And that's sort of mm-hmm. how they're able to survive playing that role in that body. Where's Mitchell's... Uh, athleticism in comparison to those players or and if you think those comparisons are stupid tell me as well no they're they're great comparisons he's on that level in 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 terms of his overall athleticism that's why he rated out you know as high as he did in espn's top 100 it was because of the athleticism it was because of his potential versatility on the defensive side of the ball able to cover able to cover so much ground so quickly but again if more of the offensive games has come around what what puts him in a better life as a prospect? I'll give you one more name, a guy who just came into the NBA but had a lot of similar questions, Kendall Brown oh, out yeah, of Baylor, yeah. right? He was a guy who, you know, yep. top 10 projected pick at some points throughout last cycle, but he just would not look at the rim. He wouldn't shoot the ball in situations where he needed to. He lacked that confidence. He fell all the way in the draft, didn't really do too much of note in the G League this year either, and he fizzled out. Now, I think Dylan Mitchell has much more defensive potential than that guy, but it's just another example of if you don't have – a specific skill set if you can't hit those threes that a KJ Martin can, right? If you aren't better with your handle and able to create your own shot slashing towards the basket like a Hamadou Diallo, you know, we're, we're talking about those guys in this draft. You're, you're not jumping out of your seat to take either one of those guys in the first round either. So if, if that's kind of where we're at with Dylan Mitchell and that's kind of how we feel about him after combine week, it just gives more evidence to, to that the theory that I don't think he's going to stay in this draft. I think he's going to go back to school or he's going to transfer, whatever the case may be. I, I don't see him staying in because I just don't think he's going to be drafted where he probably would want to see himself drafted in terms of value. If that's not happening, I, I just don't see him staying in. The last guy we're going to talk about is someone who isn't 19 and someone who has had multiple seasons in college, and that is... The big fella out of Kansas State, Keontae Johnson, who is going to be 23 really soon. He's a 6'6 wing. Um, shot the ball really well, 40% from three. He had 26 usage. You might remember Keontae Johnson suffered a medical issue a couple of years ago where he, he passed out on the court, but he was mm-hmm. able to recover, and he's back from that. He's got the size. He's got the strength as a wing. The shooting is there. So all of these things look interesting, like size, good. Prototypical sort of wing size. Shooting, awesome. Um, you know, strength definitely there, but he's going to be a second round guy. He obviously stayed in college a little bit longer. Some of that is, is health related. Is there a feasible NBA path for Keontae Johnson? There is a path. 
it's probably not a starter's path. It's more so like, you know, eighth, ninth, tenth man off the bench kind of path because to his credit, he is a really good shooter. We saw his spot of ability at Florida, and we saw plenty of it at Kansas State. But if you ask him to do a little bit more than that, right, if you ask him to, to put the ball on the deck and consistently create something for himself or create something for someone else, he hasn't been able to do that at a high level. So he becomes specifically a spot-up guy. And then on the defensive side of the ball, he has strength. He can cover guys one-on-one. He can defend a bigger guy in the post. But if you're asking him to run all over the court, depend on his lateral mobility, he's not stopping anyone on the, on the perimeter necessarily. He's not keeping up with a bunch of guys. So if he's not living up to the full potential of 3 and D in the sense of that aspect, and if there's not really – any ceiling for him to go past that three and D role again, why would you invest a certain type of pick in him? Right. If you're looking for a role player who can come in, has good body, good frame, who can shoot threes, pick 45 and on. Absolutely. Go take a chance on that guy or sign him with a two way contract. But in terms of being like a top 45 prospect in that sense, I don't see that pathway for him, but that doesn't mean that NBA teams don't need to fill out, you know, the end of their bench and find guys who can thrive on two-way contracts, maybe be somebody who, if a wing or a forward's injured, they need somebody to step up on any given night. Keontae Johnson's the least experienced. He can do that for a team. The other thing that's interesting this year, Nathan, is we've got the three two-way spots now. So the yes. the back end of the draft and a lot of two-way guys, and there's the always the undrafted shenanigans that goes on, like, don't pick my guy here because he wants to sign here. But we've got more spots available. So I think some of those later second round players are going to be, it's going to be maybe less shenanigans because we've got more roster spots to fill out. So teams are going to be like, oh no, we actually just need to get a guy in here for this spot rather than like it's the 17th guy because the 17th guy now is not the last guy on your roster. There's still the 18th guy to go in there. So that does open up a little bit more for some of these end of bench players, which is probably what Keontae or end of draft players, which is Keontae is probably likely going to be. And that, Nathan, brings us to the end of our discussion on draft prospects. So thank you very much for coming on and chatting about Nick Smith and Jed Howard and Victor Wembanyama, Dylan Mitchell, Keontae Johnson. And now you can tell us what is going on over at uh, No Ceilings, what you've got pumping out at the moment. Absolutely. So thank you, Josh, so much for for having me on. I really appreciate it. NoSeilingsNBA.com, our written substack. You can find content on the NBA draft every day, Monday through Friday. We just got done covering the G League Elite Camp. We've had combine previews done by my co- uh, co-host over on Draft Deeper, Maxwell Baumbach. We've had big board updates, mock draft updates all week. So if you're looking for anything draft related, certainly check out what we've done this week as well as catching up on any prospect that who can go in the top 60 you can think of. Go check it out. Go and check them out there. Go and subscribe to their Substack too. Nathan, thank you for, uh, for coming on. Absolutely. Thank you, Josh. And that will do it for me today. Don't forget to follow this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, and on the Odyssey app and on YouTube. Thumb it up. Leave your comments down below. Guys, we are done here. Thank you so much for listening, everyone. See ya.